Released on Sunday, July 31st, 2016. This Agile Life, episode 115. It's called a comic book. This episode of This Agile Life is brought to you by Agile Dev East, the premier industry conference for agile development professionals. To find out more, go to adceast.techwell.com. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hi, I'm Lee McCauley, and the guys behind me who can't seem to get it get it together to start a podcast are Amos King and Craig Buchak. We're going to start talking here, and hopefully you guys can catch up with us. <laughs> I love it, Lee. Uh, I, I miss you guys. Um, that's why i got to give Craig crap the entire time tonight. But oh, boy. We'll, we'll get there. Maybe. <laughs> it's going to be a long ride, though. <laughs> All right, so uh, we were looking for a topic, and we went to our Slack channel uh, called Episode Ideas, and we went back to, looks like we went back to April or May, uh, May, so um, the... My gosh, it's like we never actually look at the Slack channel if we had to go back to May. Well, we've covered some of the things in between then. Um, So version one had the 10th annual State of Agile report. And so we were... We're not going to talk about the whole report. Oh, thank God. So we're going to talk about page 10. So page 10 has a list of um, agile techniques that different teams employ. Wait, Craig, I got to point out that, you know, every year we've talked about this report and we've pretty much reamed it and talked about how horrible it is and how we're surprised at the state of Agile. But th- but this year, particularly, there was such a bad report that one page deserves its own podcast. That's, that's true. To be fair, though, that doesn't necessarily mean that the data is wrong. It's just so depressing that after 10 years of Agile being such a big, big thing that they would even bother gathering this data that we still have the statistics that we're going to talk about here. So let's let's start with uh, maybe the good. Uh, 83- no, no, no. No, no. Lee said we should start at the bottom. And, and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go with Lee on this because he's more handsome than you are. So at the very bottom of the list is BDD, Behavior Driven Development. 10%, only 10% of... Agile teams are using BDD as a technique. Oh, my gosh. So this is probably actually the least surprising thing on the entire list for me when I went through it. But it yes, but still depressing. It doesn't it doesn't make me super sad because we have we have test driven development up higher. But uh, yeah, test driven development and BDD are not separate to me because if you're doing BDD, you're still writing your test first. So it's still test driven development, but it's, it's a mindset. And, and I think that that's the big problem is there, there are some people who are doing BDD and don't realize it. And there are a lot of people who I would say that they're not doing BDD because they're not doing TDD. Um, I actually find that the TDD percentage of respondents is is rather high from the experience of the places that I move from and work and have to, like, scream at people to write tests first. They say they're doing TDD, but they write some tests, even BDD. They, they, like, write a test, 
and then they delete the test because they didn't write it right, and then they write all the code, and then they go write tests. And they say, well, we're doing TDD. I hope you didn't really mean that you scream at people, because that, that's not people first. Huh? No, it is people first. Intelligent people first. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You're not following the process, people. <laughs> is that how you process say it? Process over people. Yeah, I usually do. I usually am like, damn it, you need some more process. I, I, <laughs> I, I think one of the problems with, with I think one of the problems with BDD is that uh, it wasn't really marketed. The, I mean, it's a subtle change from TDD, the idea, the the way of thinking about things, the mindset. Um, and I think we've talked about it, and I think different people have different ideas what BD, BDD even is. And it's and it's much tougher to do than TDD. TDD, it's pretty easy as far as the technologies go. There are unit testing frameworks that allow that are built into to, to uh, lots of languages now. It's easy to do TDD. It's harder to do BDD, and especially when you look up at some of the other things that people are doing uh, sparingly, like continuous deployment or uh, automated acceptance testing. That it's it's not that surprising the BDD is is lower. So I think we have. Uh, I think the big problem is like the advertising, and you talk about it being lower, is that people don't realize what BDD is, or either that, or my definition is way different. So I would love to hear like from each of you uh, in alphabetical order by third letter of your middle name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What? Um, what? I had to say third letter because if we got fourth letter, I didn't have one. Um, yeah. What BDD is to you? Well, I'm an E. So uh, Lee and I have the same middle name because his middle name's Lee and my middle name's Lee. Okay. <laughs> so Lee, on the count of three, we both go one, two. Okay, I'll let you go first because I'm a gentleman <laughs> and I always let ladies go first. Ooh. <laughs> Okay, I, I'm I'm uh, happy with that. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, behavior-driven development is really the same thing as TDD, except you're doing it from the uh, the overarching uh, feature-level acceptance test things. So, you're writing automated acceptance tests, uh, and you're doing that before you're even writing. Um, any code or any unit tests for that matter. And granted, that's a little tougher to do automated acceptance tests that are useful. Uh, great. Uh, Craig, are you next? No, uh, no. Do you have a letter between the E's? No, I no? do not. Okay. <laughs> no, it looks like it's me then. Um, so I actually have a, a different idea of what PDD is. I think that uh, the acceptance level uh, behavior-driven development is a little different from once you get down to the unit level. And how I look at it is behavior-driven development to me is instead of saying, here's this method and here's how it behaves in all these different states. Instead, I swap that and I say, here's the state of an object and here's all of its behaviors. And then here's another state of it, object and all of its behavior. So I have, instead of, like, testing a method ten times uh, and and having that be the context, the context is the, the greater world and then all of the behaviors inside of it. So I actually separate method tests frequently if they have different paths based on state of object. I have not heard that definition. My, my understanding of BDD is closer to, to Amos's uh, thoughts than Lee's. 
Um, so it's it's more a way of of looking at TDD and not thinking about tests, but thinking about behaviors. Um, and so you specify behaviors instead of writing tests. So usually they're called specifications. You use language that makes you think about things a little clearer, more from the uh, user's point of view, whether that's the uh, end user, the customer, the user of the software, or uh, the person using the API of the object or class or whatever you're working on. Um, so typically, uh, so, uh, the things, so Lee talked about acceptance level testing, um, which is sort of a orth- orthogonal idea, um, but usually we use Cucumber or something that uses the same language uh, of given when then. Given when then definitely came from the BDD camp. And, I, and I, you know, I don't think that any of us here are, are wrong. I think that we all have uh, things that go into what BDD is. But I'm really th- thinking that this 10%, I'm not so sad about because I think there are so many people who don't realize that they're doing BDD and they really are. That, that's probably true. I also think that there's a lot of people who uh, aren't doing BDD, but only because they don't understand what it is. Um, but but I... I do you think that there are a lot of lot more than ten percent doing PDD from my experiences? Well, I, I think not knowing what it is, then you don't know what the advantages are, and so why would you bother doing it? I think it hasn't been sold very well, and and it's really subtle, so it's hard to understand the subtlety and and why you should do it because of that. Well, I had many conversations uh, when PDD was first starting to be really really talked about with Brian Button, and Brian's like, "What's the difference between TDD and BDD?" What's the difference? What's the difference? Like every day, he's like, that sounds like TDD to me. Every time I tried to explain it to him. So I had to sit around and that's where I came up with the it's swapping the normal context of TDD of of instead of looking at what is the behavior of this method within the state? It's what's the behavior of this object within a state? I think I think I was thinking of it uh, at because Craig mentioned like from the user level, and so I, I think that's where I've always uh, used it. Although I really like your your perspective difference on it, Amos. We should do an experiment sometime and and write some code together of something really small and and write it both ways and see see what we think of the the test suites. Do two different test suites. Yeah. I think I've done that before on, on just a little small unit test. I, I did it with the St. Louis Ruby group. It was awesome. Uh, I think it was there for that. Uh, let's go up the chart. The next one, the next least uh, used Agile technique is <laughs> Agile Games. I wish Tice was here to talk about that. It's 16% of teams. <laughs> this is super depressing to me. Um, I, I am one of those people that sits in a retro and is like, we have too many games. But... Games are good for pulling out the things that are wrong that you don't realize are wrong or the things that you're unwilling to talk about mm-hmm. until they like come out naturally. And games help you get there. They help you talk about the hard things that you don't want to talk about or you don't realize need to be talked about. So 16%, that's that's weak. So what are people what doing the, what the hell in retrospectives doing? if they're not doing them? It says 74% of people do retrospectives, so... If they never do a game at the retrospective, what do they do? What went well? What went badly? Yeah, every time they go into retrospective, they draw a picture of a boat with a sail and an anchor. 
And that's that's every retrospective. And then the manager sits in the back and tweets 47 times in an hour. <laughs> so the next one on the list is the one that is is really bumming me the out. The most rage inducing. And that one, that one should be the top of the list. I'm telling you, if there's anything that you do, actually, my pick tonight is based on a graph that talks about this, is that in Agile, our thing is about feedback, right? We want to reduce the feedback loop. Even continuous deployment, the feedback loop is hours to months, depending on how quick your users are to get back to you. Pair programming, your feedback loop is seconds or milliseconds. Why the heck aren't you people pair programming? This makes me sick. It's it's second on my list. It should be second on my list after retrospectives. It's retrospectives on this list, though. It is. It's actually number four from the top. Okay, well, we'll get there. We'll get there, and then I'll be pissed off about it, too. But No, no I'm, I'm saying that pair, I wouldn't do pair programming as my very first. I have a tendency to say that retrospectives are more important than pair programming uh, as far as a team goes. But I also look at pair programming sessions as miniature retrospectives. So if you're pair programming, I feel that a lot of the benefits you get from doing a retrospective come out naturally as you move on. So I think retrospectives sort of help you fix problems in the large and pair programming helps you fix problems in the small. Retrospectives are a way to get to pair programming. I pretty much have always done pair programming as part of an agile team. Uh, I've never had one that doesn't do that. Um, my question would be how, what would come up in a retrospective that would lead you to say, Oh, you know what? I think pair programming is a solution to that problem. Code reviews, things getting through code reviews that still have problems quality problems so my my other problem here is whenever it just says pair programming is how often because that just says you did pair programming does that mean like 15 minutes a week uh, <laughs> i talked to somebody else about the code yeah somebody else sat, sat down me beside me when i had this really big problem for 10 minutes so i want to quantify pair programming like we do pair programming all the time or we do pair programming some of the time i would like those to be two separate things in here because i want to know how how many hours a week are you spending pair programming and even if you tell me 100 percent of the time you're lying i i found that on teams that i work with that like uh, when i come in and they say oh yeah we pair program all the time uh their pair programming all the time consists of like 20 minutes a week where they discuss something with two people and then they say, okay, now I've got it from here. And one of them goes off and does it while the other one goes and does something else. And they say, we're pair programming. And I'm like, no, you dis you had discussions, but you weren't pair programming. Yeah, I'd say my current team only does 20 to 50% pair programming. Although we actually do mob code reviews, which adds on top of that a little bit, which is kind of an interesting uh, method. But um, I, I wish we were doing more pair programming. Speaking of pair programming, because mob programming uh, is not on this list, my current team twi twice a week does mob programming, and it started out as, hey, let's try this out, and now, like, they really like it. We seem to get a lot of things through, and we, all, a lot of us who are newer to the application learn a lot about this application and how to use it yeah. um, by, by stepping through it with QA, because even QA is involved. It's not just mob programming. It's really mob getting shit across the Kanban board. <laughs> um, but it's funny because, like, we schedule time twice a week, and it's supposed to end at, like, 1.30 in the afternoon. And 
will continue to do it. The other day, I, I mob program with my team from 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. And it was freaking fantastic. We got so much done. I learned so much. So not only is 24% shitty for pair programming, but I'm going to include mob programming is probably some percentage of these people are also mobbing and they they just marked pairing. Um, try it out. If you're not doing it, you're you're missing out on huge amounts of benefit. Yeah, the the thing about pair programming is you don't... It's counterintuitive, so you won't understand how it works, why it works. Um, a lot of the problems that you have that it solves, you don't even know that you're having. You don't know when you're stuck for an hour. You don't realize it. Um, you don't realize when you're stuck for two minutes when you could be stuck for 30 seconds. So that time adds up a lot. So we talk a lot about paraprogramming. Uh, but hopefully people, more people in, more people listening to this podcast are doing it than, than uh, version one survey. Hopefully. Hopefully. If you're not, try it, please. Ask someone that knows how to do it well to help you. If you're in our Slack channel, too, and you're not pair programming, please tell me about it and tell me why. Because I would love to understand, like, why you would not be doing this. Because I've been doing it for so long, and I didn't do it, and I did do it, that I'm, I'm surprised that anybody's not doing it. All right, let's move on up the chart here. The next one at 25% is collective code ownership. This is just going to piss me off. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, this is exactly why we should talk about this one. How is it that a team doesn't own the code? Because, Lee, I'm in charge of email, and you're in charge of getting that little box on the front of the login system working. And other than that, I don't want to know what the hell you're doing. I don't need to know the intricacies. I just want to work on my freaking email, all right? Wow. There's got to be so many so many systems out there that are dependent on one guy for for there's got to be so many points of failure there. Lee, they're all dependent on Amos. Of course, it's a point of failure. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm fired up tonight. You got brought up version one, and you guys got me crazy. You're, you're drinking a beer, but I'm pretty sure you're you're highballing it with uh, speedballing it with with cocaine or something. I I've had about four ounces of beer. Uh huh. Um. So collective code ownership. It's, the the did idea. Did I mention it's ninety eight percent alcohol? Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> so the idea there is to make sure that one person isn't your single point of failure, right? Um, but also so everyone is learning everything, uh, is continuously learning about all aspects of the project. Um, we, we have a unique problem on my team and most of the teams in my company in that um, some of the, the people on the team are developers and some are um, systems engineers, um, operations people. And that makes it a little more difficult to to do collective code ownership. So, you know, the, if there's some Linux work to do some Ansible automation, then the systems guys are more likely to have expertise in that. And they'll be more likely to work on that more effectively. So I, I do temper that in my situation a little bit so that we don't all have to work on the things that are really, really hard for us currently. But as the team progresses, that'll, that'll decrease. 
it says collective code ownership, which which I don't really like. It's really collective product ownership, right? Getting it out the door. Whether it's the deployment or the server or anything, everybody should be able to work on it. There's this uh, great game that I actually play that I'm pretty sure that you guys have played, um, Get Kanban where during part of the game if you use like just the base rules they say okay uh, I, I don't remember if it's QA or design says unless you're QA or design you can't help out even though you might not be as effective in those roles it really has an impact on that game and, and you get to see that you aren't getting things out near as quickly as soon as somebody says that you can't work on it. So in whenever you start to own parts of the system and say nobody else can touch this, you you slow down because you have you have a funnel effect, right? If you have one or two people that can do it out of ten, you have a funnel. And and if nobody's allowed to help you or they feel like it's your job, then they feel like they can't help you, which I've been in that situation. It's hard to come in, even though that's one of the things that I fight against the most. It's really, really hard to say, oh, wait, no, I can go ahead and change that ticket. Because people start, when you move into an organization that has ownership, you have the, uh, instead of doing a code review and just fixing the little problems, it's like throwing it over the wall. You say, hey, this is, you, you misspelled this instead of just fixing it. And, and you know, uh, it's one thing that would fix this problem in a team. Pair, pair, pair programming. Pairing, yes! How about that? God, it's like a solution. It's like a solution to everything. <laughs> Except for Agile games. It's not going to fix that. But it will fix TDD because, because you'll call people out while you're working with them. So... Anyway, <laughs> all right. Let's let's move up to chart. Uh, coming in at twenty seven percent is continuous deployment. This one actually doesn't surprise me. It it does not surprise me. It does not it does not depress me per se, but disappoint a little bit. Like I would like to see it around fifty. Uh, that would make me feel good. I would feel like we're making some progress. But again, it's it we're all about feedback, right? In agile. Absolutely. Uh, although I, I do kind of see in some cases from a business perspective, when you're talking about a product and there's more than just, can I get the software out the door? Uh, there's also the, well, we've also got to create training material and we've got to, so there are occasions when it is not necessarily practical to just do continuous deployment. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, uh, that you've got an excuse. Well, those occasions seem to seem to be more um, uh, dependent on exactly the thing that you're releasing instead of an entire product, right? So, if you have something where you're changing the way things work, you might need to be releasing some documentation along with it. So, you might hold on to it for a little bit. But when you're like tweaking small things and moving forward, the the ability to get feedback and get it out there and and the risk, if I'm if I'm deploying 15 things, my risk is a whole lot higher than deploying one. And most of the time, the change blindness problem leads to people won't notice. And even if you add a new feature, they'll start to use it before you have to give them documentation. And then you'll fix bugs with it before it's widespread use. Yeah, I think continuous deployment is a bit more advanced technique. And it's usually after you've sort of gotten rolling. Um, You know, your first month or a couple months of deployments, you probably don't need to 
deploy a couple times a day, which is what continuous deployment means to me. Shut up, Craig. Yes, you should. It should be like the first thing you set up. Well, no, I don't disagree with that. That's that's an excellent point. If you set these things up early in a project, all these all these things that seem hard, set them up when they're the at the very beginning of a project where when they're the easiest and then it's much easier to just keep up with them. That, that's true. If, if you're not doing continuous deployment, I want you to sit down and do the five whys with the whoever decides that you can't continuous deploy and figure out what exactly makes it that you can't and if you can if you can go around that even part of the time right like if you're doing bug fixes can we continuously deploy bug fixes but maybe not big features you know if you have legal requirements i can understand i i've not been able to go through five wives with people and end up to a point where they're like okay we need to start working toward continuous deployment because there i i can't find a reason really strong reason not to with once i start going through the five wise it's not money and it's not legal requirements move on so the one that i would have right now at the company i'm at is uh fear the the ultimate users don't trust the IT department to be able to deploy something that is uh, uh, that is free of bugs and if they and they won't see the bug for two months and by then it's cost them millions of dollars that's because they're not doing BDD and pair programming you're a, you're <laughs> absolutely right because they spent 15 years on this product and they just brought us in a couple of months ago and uh, and so they've got all this history of bad feelings and bad code and now we've got to get around to that and it's not going to happen overnight yeah how many podcasts have we done on trust and going in with uh, trust and doing trust and i yep. think like a week ago we had one on trust it might have been two weeks ago uh, so and we're starting to build that trust but it's going to take a yeah. while let's start trusting the small though right so again if you go through the five whys maybe we can start saying well bug fixes Let's try to continuous deploy those because who the hell wants to sit around with a bug for a month or a week while we wait for a <laughs> deployment time period? And and so so at least we can start to build trust on fixing bugs and, and moving towards that. Before we go on, let me tell you about our sponsor. Agile Dev East is the premier industry event covering the latest techniques and topics in the Agile universe. Learn both foundational knowledge and and new methodologies to develop skills, supercharge knowledge, and re-energize your career growth. This year's event will take place November 13th through the 18th in Orlando, Florida. As an added bonus, the event is co-located with Better Software and DevOps East conferences. Your one registration automatically gives you access to all three programs. This means you can choose from over 100 learning and networking opportunities to build a customized week of learning that fits you and your organization's specific needs. Explore the program at adceast.techwell.com. Also, don't miss the Agile Leadership Summit at the end of the conference. The summit is a full day of in-depth discussion about increasing leadership mastery with the opportunity to learn new ways to challenge your personal leadership growth and to lead in your organizational challenges. This Agile Life listeners receive an exclusive discount of up to $600 off with code AGILELIFE 
when they register by the September 16th super early bird deadline at adceast.techwell.com. All right. I think we've talked that one out for now. Uh, moving up the chart, 28% automated acceptance testing. So things like... We have not made it very far. No. Just so you know. <laughs> We're about uh, a quarter, maybe. Yeah. I don't even know if we're that far. Um, so I, I feel really bad for your testers, your quality assurance department, if they have to manually acceptance test every single thing that's in the GUI every single time you do a release. And that's probably why you're not doing continuous deployment. I, uh, well, and I actually understand this more than anything else in relation with the other things that we've already seen. Is that, to me, I'm actually surprised that we have more automated acceptance testing than we do PDD and pair programming. Because automated acceptance testing is harder if you don't understand testing in general in the first place. Because... You run into timing issues. You have to be able to write tests that that deal with um, uh, asynchronous behavior, and so it it can be painful if you if you haven't practiced at it. But the best way to get those things done is to practice. You don't get better at something by wishing that you were better. And, and to start with it, um, yeah, you're right. That the acceptance level tests are so much more brutal. Uh, almost everywhere I've seen than unit tests. And if you have a project that's been around for a long time, it can be really hard to start that up because your project isn't set up in a way in which it, it can be easily acceptance tested. Not saying it can't be. It just may, you might bang your head against the table a few times before you actually get something working. Lee, you got any input? We should probably do an entire pod. We should probably do an entire podcast just on the testing pyramid. Um, Ooh. And because this this uh, right now I've got uh, I, I mentioned the fact that the the ultimate users don't really have um, confidence and trust in the IT department to give them a product, um, but they do have a slew of ex- automated acceptance tests in Cucumber and some other some other things, um, so that so that their uh, testing pyramid looks more like a cone. So they've got a ton of of these automated cucumber tests and only a few unit tests. Uh, you get the idea. So, but, but it's horribly, horribly difficult to maintain. Uh, it's not sustainable. So, so is that podcast title going to be Valley of the Kings? <laughs> Maybe. All right. Anyway, bad joke. <laughs> I'm not funny. Craig didn't laugh. I'm not funny. Oh, you're not. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Next one up is story mapping at 30%. And and I'll have to admit, I don't actually do story mapping, I don't think. Or at least I don't know exactly what it is. Story mapping, we probably probably need to do some research and and talk about that some other time. Uh, But really, test-driven development, 33%. Hey, all I can say is at least it's a higher percentage than continuous deployment. <laughs> Why is it this? And I needed a hundred percent. It's not that hard. Yeah, I well, I don't expect it to ever be at a hundred percent because no matter how much you teach people, even even when people see it and see it work, 
it's it is it is work until you get past the point where it becomes natural. It's hard. It's hard when you start. And when things are hard, people are like, I could just write this freaking code and they go do it. So how do we combat? I'm just going to go write this code because that's really to me what that 33 percent says is that is that 67 percent of people out there say it's much easier and simpler. I'll just write the code and make it work. It's it's much easier and simpler to write the code that time. But two months from now, when you're coming back into code that's uh, not tested and you have to change something, but you have no idea how that code was really supposed to work in the first place, then not having tests around it, oh my gosh, your your simple little change now takes two days where it should have taken 20 minutes. I wrote it right the first time, Lee. I don't have to rewrite it later. Yeah, right. Do you know how much money I make at $200 an hour to come in and clean up behind people when they don't have tests? So, you know, uh, I, a I, lot. I could take an hour, but instead it usually takes me about five. I, I would make a whole lot less money if you guys had write tests all yeah, the time. That's what I'm saying. That sounds really this- cocky. I don't mean it in a cocky way. I mean, shit, could you write some freaking tests so that when I come in, we can actually get shit done instead of starting at the test level and fighting ourselves for days? If you guys would get your shit together, we wouldn't have to come and clean up behind you so much. Why are we yelling at our at our listeners today? Uh, it wasn't the listeners. Well, it might be our listeners. <laughs> Let's, well, I, I actually hope that some of the listeners are the people that have these issues because maybe we're actually reaching out. But either way, I'm, I, I'm still just complaining at my friends more than talking to the listeners <laughs> about shit that I go through on a daily basis. Like I, I do not love sitting and and figuring out what the hell somebody meant six months ago who no longer works at the companies that I'm working with. Uh, and and if I, you know, the people that no longer work there, sometimes the reason that they no longer work there are because they didn't know what they were talking about six months ago. And so they're running from it or they're kicked out of it. And, and unfortunately, like, TDD comes down to a lot of it. And bus numbers. And the crazy thing is, is the more that you communicate with the people around you, the more valuable you actually become, even though you are creating other people that can do the same job you're doing. Okay. Well, the next one on the list at 37% refactoring. I, I don't change code. Hell no. I just add new shit. That's because it's not tested. I'm not going to refactor non-tested code. I'm curious about the 4%er that are refactoring t- without tested code. Well, I guess maybe it's tested but not test-driven. I mean, I mean, why the hell not? It, to me, they should have used a factory pattern here, I noticed. So, so I'm going to go make one. Uh, <laughs> maybe you should use the strategy pattern, uh, command pattern. I don't know. Like uh, To me, the, that 4% are the people that just got done reading the Gang of Four book. <laughs> or or the uh, whatever, the, the book that has all the pictures and funny things in it. I don't remember what it's called. That's called a comic book. <laughs> Some, one of you guys knows what I'm talking about. Head first. Head first is uh, what I'm talking about. I've got some good news. I'm looking up the chart, and unit testing is actually at 63%. It's just TDD that's that's half of that. So people are unit testing, and that's how they're able to refactor. No, but they're writing them afterwards, and that's a, that's a, that's a freaking cop-out. Because I can write tests for code that already does something and make them pass. But 
that's the same thing that I do. I come in and I find code that's untested and I'm like, well, shit, what was it supposed to do? Not what does it do. And half the time what it does do is wrong. And that's the reason why I'm there fixing it in the first place. So if you had codified what it should do before you wrote what it does do, you might not actually have the problems that you have. Agreed. It it would help the TDD. That's a pretty clear point. God, this... I'm going to have to take my shirt off and <laughs> get a fan. God, it's... No, please, oh, please. We have right. video on. Next one up is an open work area, 38%. I, I think... Wait, wait. Can we go back to refactoring? Oh, okay, let's refactor what our discussion on refactoring. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying, like, what, what do you do if you're not refactoring? You just keep adding code, like... It just gets worse and worse. Re- rewriting instead of refactoring? Like, Is, make it a big I, I mess? Mean, my, my only... Oh, I can see rewriting. But I think uh, the big thing is is that I bet a large percentage that say that they're refactoring are actually doing rewrites. Yeah, yeah. And calling it refactoring, because I've seen it too many, too many times. D- to me, that's like... Uh, at least they got the open close principle down. <laughs> we never actually change anything that we've already oh, made. Nice. We just wrap it. <laughs> um, so so I, I, I'm just confused like what are you doing if you're not refactoring does your product never change refactoring is not changing your is not changing your code refactoring is changing your code without changing its behavior so so either what you're telling me is that they never go back and make it better that's what they do yeah so it's either perfect and they had <laughs> an amazing architect <laughs> which we all we all know is bullshit because most of them should be fired um, or shit just remains crap. And my, and my guess is yeah, there you go. That the poop emoji is used an awful lot at these companies. It's got a little smiley face. Kind of look, look how, look how bad this is. We should go add a new feature instead. <laughs> hey everybody. It's John. I've got to stop and interrupt here for a second. I've got some really great news. We have a new t-shirt, a new people work here t-shirt. A lot of people have been asking for it, and it's finally available. So if you would like to get a people work here t-shirt so that you can remind everybody at work that we are not resources and that we are people and that people work here, as well as supporting This Agile Life, the podcast, you can get our t-shirt. Go out and get it today at Booster dot com slash people work here okay a couple more bits of news some good news some bad news okay the good news is there's more of this great talk to come on the version one state of agile the bad news is you're going to have to wait until next week the guys got so rambunctious so wound up about the report and about this particular part of the report that they went on for quite a long time. So there's going to have to be a part two, and you'll be able to get that next week. So look for it in your podcast application. Look for part two coming up next week. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Keep living this Agile life. This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.